Parevces, Urachim Vort Miatselek Metzagrin, Yes Aspet Tavit Metzoriene, Tief Meg Ararat Talijits. I'm Aspet David Metzorian of Ararat Lodge Number One here in Boston, and this is episode 46 of Talking Vartan, the Knights and Daughters of Vartan podcast. There are certain historical events in our lives where I think it's safe to say that we all remember exactly where we were when they happened. For our grandparents and great-grandparents, the Armenian Genocide in 1915, the Pearl Harbor attack, D-Day, and to a younger generation, the moon landing, the 1988 earthquake, Armenia becoming an independent republic once again, the 44-day war, and most recently, the loss of Artsakh, events that are seared into our collective memory. There was another event 60 years ago this month, the shock and impact of which was felt the world over. One person described what happened at the time as the greatest, darkest, most emotional, most demanding shared experience ever experienced by any people at any time. It was a Friday, the 22nd of November, 1963. Thanksgiving and the start of the holiday season were less than a week away. Young people here in the U.S. were listening to the Beach Boys, Jan and Dean, Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Ronettes, Four Seasons, Chiffons, and Leslie Gore. On one of the morning network news programs that day, viewers were introduced to a pop group from Liverpool, England, who were taking Europe by storm, but who were yet unknown in the U.S. Their name? The Beatles. It was now just after 2 p.m. on the East Coast. At Symphony Hall, just a few miles from where I am now, the Boston Symphony Orchestra was about to conclude the first half of its matinee performance. Conductor Eric Leinsdorf walked back onto the stage, but did not lift his baton to begin the suite by Rimsky-Korsakov. He instead approached the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a press report over the wires. We hope that it is unconfirmed, but we have to doubt it, that the President of the United States has been the victim of an assassination. We will play the funeral march from Beethoven's Third Symphony. The news came to each in their own place and each responded in their own way. People stopped what they were doing and raced for the nearest television or radio. Those at home rushed outside to tell their neighbors. Businesses came to a halt. The stock market closed. To this day, people remember exactly where they were when they got the news. For Nachki Navakspadabed Stephen Adams, it was midday at the John Burroughs Elementary School in Fresno, California. I was in the sixth grade sitting in the cafeteria eating lunch when somebody came up to the microphone and I don't know if it was a teacher or not and said that the president had been shot. The immediate reaction that I recall at the time was this noisy cafeteria of elementary school children that went completely quiet when it was announced. 
I still remember the image, it still sits in my head. In Europe, it was early evening, and the news interrupted dinner conversations and caused the marquees of London's theatre district to go dark. It was late at night when word of the president's death reached Yerevan through Soviet radio and television. Many in Armenia and other Eastern European and Mediterranean countries did not learn of the tragedy until the following morning. Nakhina Vagdidui Gloria Korkorian was one of them. She was attending the Melkonian Institute in Nicosia, Cyprus. I was at school, and in the morning I came down to have breakfast uh, with the girls. You know, it was a girls' school and a boys' school. And I was sitting there, and one of the girls said, your president was assassinated yesterday. And I looked at her, and I said, what are you talking about? And she said, your president was assassinated. So I got up, and I went into the lounge where they had a, a, a radio no TVs. And I turned on the radio, I think I got BBC, and it talked about the assassination. Throughout the day, under gloomy skies and pouring rain, a procession has been filing into the White House where the body of Mr. Kennedy now rests. Among the family mourners was Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy with her two young children, Caroline and John, clutching at her skirt. The coffin, draped with the American flag, lies in the white and gold East Room of the White House. And I was in total shock. And I went back to my table and I was crying. And my uh, uh, students kept saying, these women kept saying, why are you crying? And I said, my president was just assassinated. And I looked around and I realized these girls came from Ethiopia, Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, all the entire Middle East. They were used to coups and assassinations. And I just sat there and I just couldn't process it. We'll hear more from Nakinabagdidui Gloria Kerkorian shortly. But first, a little about my own family's connection to John F. Kennedy and the aftermath of those four dark days in 1963. Before his death, John Kennedy had stated publicly that he wanted his presidential library to be built in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near Harvard Square, along the Charles River. For years after the president's death, whenever the library was discussed, the city of Cambridge was always mentioned as the proposed site. At that time, my father, Jack Medzorian, a future spotabed of Ararat Lodge, was an executive for a company called Baird Atomic, whose corporate offices were located in Harvard Square, on the site of the proposed JFK Library. The property was sold in 1968, and there was a Boston Globe photograph showing Dad shaking hands with the president of the JFK Library Foundation after the papers had been signed. Baird Atomic, later Baird Corporation, would move to its new corporate office and factory in nearby Bedford. However, there was growing opposition by both Harvard University and Cambridge residents to having the Kennedy Library built in that city. They feared endless traffic log jams and worried that Harvard Square would become an overcrowded tourist trap. The plan to build the Kennedy Library in Cambridge was scrapped in 1975. A new site was selected in Dorchester, adjacent to the University of Massachusetts Boston campus. 
Ground was broken in 1977, and on October 20th, 1979, the John Fitzgerald Kennedy Library and Museum was officially dedicated. Its doors opened to the public the following morning, and when they opened, I say with great pride that I was the first patron to walk in. As a television and radio broadcaster in New England, I covered many news stories at the Kennedy Library, and I also spent countless hours there as both a researcher and broadcast historian. The men and women who worked in the audiovisual archives knew me well. I had also met the library's curator, Dave Powers. He had known John F. Kennedy since he helped manage his 1946 campaign for Congress. Dave Powers would be at Jack Kennedy's side for the next 17 years as both his loyal aide and best friend. He was also in the car directly behind the presidential limousine on that tragic day in Dallas. In 1988, on the 25th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, I interviewed Dave Powers at his office at the JFK Library. Two years later, I moved here to Arlington, Massachusetts, and to my surprise and delight, Dave Powers was my neighbor, living just a few houses away. We got to know each other quite well and would enjoy long conversations while he was walking his dog. We talked about almost everything regarding Jack Kennedy. I say almost everything because I was aware that Dave Powers knew intimately about John F. Kennedy's womanizing. I also knew that whenever he was asked about it by reporters, Powers refused to discuss the topic, accusing those who wrote such gossip, as he called it, of doing so simply to make money. On the 30th anniversary of the assassination in 1993, I sat down again with Dave Powers and talked about John F. Kennedy's fateful trip to Texas, a trip that began in triumph and ended in tragedy. You will hear segments from both of my interviews with Dave Powers just ahead. And here is the president. (laughs) President Kennedy is uh, flanked by Representative Jim Wright. You hear the crowd applauding. November 22nd had begun in the rain for John F. Kennedy. He was in Fort Worth, Texas. It was the second day of a planned three-day trip to the Lone Star State a trip made all the more pleasant, both personally and politically, because his wife Jackie was there with him. Just before 9 a.m., a large crowd had gathered in the drizzle outside the Texas Hotel. They were hoping that the president might come outside and say a word or two to them before addressing the local Chamber of Commerce indoors. After being introduced by Vice President Lyndon Johnson, Mr. Kennedy did not disappoint them. President, Jim Wright, Governor, Senator Yarborough, Mr. Botka, ladies and gentlemen, there are no faint hearts in Fort Worth, and I appreciate, I appreciate your being here this morning. Mrs. Kennedy is organizing herself, it takes longer. But of course she looks better than we do when she does it. But we appreciate your welcome. After his speech to the Chamber of Commerce, in which he praised Fort Worth's role in our military and space efforts, the president and his party left the hotel to drive to nearby Carswell Air Force Base for a 10-minute flight to Love Field in Dallas. 
By now the rain had stopped, and the clouds had all but disappeared. Dave Powers had some last-minute instructions for the first couple. I'm talking to the president, Jackie, in the back of the plane, uh, and I said, Mr. President, you wave to the Texans on the right, and Jackie will wave to the ones on the left. The first of the two big official jets is now taxiing just below us, and here comes Air Force Number 1, the president's plane, now touching down. Its wheels are down, and the president and Mrs. Kennedy have arrived at Dallas Love Field. Jackie Kennedy stepped off the plane ahead of her husband, wearing a bright raspberry Chanel suit and matching pillbox hat. For several minutes, they walked along the chain-link fence, shaking hands and greeting the thousands who had come to see them. The first couple then stepped into the metal gray and blue presidential limousine. Seated with them were their hosts, Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife, Nellie. The motorcade left Love Field at five minutes before noon. Its destination was the Dallas Trademark, where the president would deliver a speech at one o'clock. The crowds along the parade route were at times 10 to 15 lines deep. Some threw confetti from windows. There's a big cheer going up as the uh, president gets further down. And now the ticker tape uh, and uh, other confetti and such is beginning to flow from the windows uh, all over the uh, large uh, buildings here and uh, engulf the entire uh, motorcade. Here comes the first car with Police Chief Jess Curry and uh, Sheriff Bill Decker. And here is the President of the United States. And what a crowd, uh, what a tremendous welcome he's getting now. We can, uh, and there's Jackie. She's getting just as big a welcome. And the crowd is absolutely going wild. This is a friendly crowd in downtown Dallas as the President and the First Lady pass by. At 1229, the presidential limousine turned off of Main Street into an area known as Dealey Plaza. The Kennedys kept on waving as the car then took another turn onto Elm Street past a seven-story red brick building called the Texas School Book Depository. And this is exactly what's happening when the first shot was fired. I had heard the noise. I'm looking at the president at the same time, and he, he had pulled his hand toward his throat, and he fell over toward Jackie. Powers then watched as the third and final shot pierced the president's head. The limousine carrying the wounded president and governor sped toward Parkland Hospital. Clint Hill, myself, and another agent lifted the president uh, on the stretcher. And with Jackie running beside us, we raced into the trauma room at the, at the hospital. And then it's just a race, one doctor after another, and it was a tiny room. And I had a chair for Jackie outside of it, and every now and then she'd go in, and, and you know, some doctor or a nurse would take her out because there wasn't any room there. Maybe about 15 minutes later, a priest arrived, and, and uh, when he went in to give the president the last rites of the church, Jackie went in again and around and prayed expecting the worst, but hoping for the best. And then at one o'clock, Texas time, he was pronounced dead. Here is a flash from Associated Press. Two priests who were with Mr. Kennedy say he is dead of bullet wounds. 
This is a flash from Associated Press in Dallas. Two priests who were with Mr. Kennedy say he is dead of bullet wounds. The next four days would be a composite blur for those who watched it and also for those who reported it. In the crushing hours between the death of the president in Dallas and the return of his body to Washington, the alleged assassin was apprehended and a new president, Lyndon Johnson, was sworn in. For most of the next three days, we sat in front of our television sets or listened to our radios, tuned to the nonstop coverage of the tragedy coverage that would not be repeated in its intensity or its length until 9-11. We watched in horror as accused presidential assassin Lee Harvey Oswald was shot dead by a local nightclub owner, Jack Ruby, right in the basement of Dallas police headquarters. We watched as world leaders arrived in Washington for the president's funeral. Charles de Gaulle of France, Prince Philip and Sir Alec Douglas Hume of Great Britain, Eamon de Valera of Ireland, Greece's Queen Frederica, Ethiopia's Emperor Haile Selassie, and from the Soviet Union, Deputy Chairman Anastas Mikoyan and Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko, just to name a few. Around the world, sporting and entertainment events were canceled. At Holy Etchmiadzin in Yerevan, in what was then Soviet Armenia, a special Hokehankist was held for the late president, a mass celebrated by Catholicos Vaskin I. Similar services were held in churches throughout Armenia and the diaspora, and in houses of worship of all faiths. Those four days left indelible images and sounds in our collective memory, which even after 60 years have not faded. Naki Navagdidui Gloria Krikorian, and what she remembers from that weekend in 1963. A gentleman came from Famagusta, which is another town in Cyprus. He came to the school. He asked for me. He said, I heard there was an American student here at the school. I came to offer my condolences on the death of your president. And I said, well, thank you. And he said, I want to take you into Nicosia. Uh, Archbishop Makarios is going to do a memorial service. And so I went with him and we stood in the square and Archbishop came out on the balcony and he did a memorial service for JFK. And I've never forgotten the kindness of that gentleman. The cortege moving slowly and mournfully up Pennsylvania Avenue. Crowds 10, 12 deep at most points. Well, I think of um, Jacqueline Kennedy with a black veil over her face. I see the image of her holding her two children's hands, standing at the side uh, of the road as the caisson was moved along. As a lifelong resident of Boston, I've heard about John F. Kennedy my entire life. As I got older, I read countless biographies and articles, beginning with Kennedy's own Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Profiles in Courage. 
but mostly I listened to his speeches, his news conferences, and also what became known as his secret White House recordings, such as those made during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the U.S. and Soviet Union were one step away from thermonuclear war. My interest in John Kennedy focuses on his life, not his tragic death. I am not what many people refer to as an assassination buff, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, even though a majority of Americans believe there was a plot to kill our 35th president. Many reached that conclusion after watching Oliver Stone's film, JFK, back in the early 90s. Though it shouldn't matter to any of you, I personally believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and that all of the credible evidence in the case points to him and no one else. Yes, John F. Kennedy was a human being with flaws and failures. He didn't get much passed in the way of legislation, although the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which he signed only a month before his death, was a major accomplishment. He gradually escalated our involvement in Vietnam, although there is debate as to whether he would have sent combat troops had he lived. Personally, and as we have all known for decades, John F. Kennedy was not a faithful husband. His womanizing was rampant and put him in a position where he could have been, and perhaps even was, blackmailed. Yet JFK was a man of great courage. We saw this during the missile crisis in 1962 when Kennedy refused to listen to his military advisors who wanted to bomb the Russian missile sites in Cuba and at the same time get rid of Fidel Castro. He called the struggle for civil rights by African Americans a moral issue, and he sent a powerful civil rights bill to Congress. He sent federalized troops to ensure that a young African American veteran, James Meredith, could attend the University of Mississippi. John Kennedy also sent troops when Alabama's governor, George Wallace, stood in the schoolhouse door in 1963 to prevent two African American students from enrolling at the State University in Tuscaloosa. Kennedy did all of this, knowing that it could cost him the support of the South in the 1964 election, a campaign he would not live to see. It is Kennedy's courage and his willingness to risk his own political stature for what he believed in that I admire most about him. He is forever frozen in our minds at the age of 46. Asking what he would have done with all those years that he never had is like throwing darts into a fog, for there can never be an answer. All we have is what he left us and what we felt when he was suddenly gone. During his trip to Ireland in June of 1963, a trip that Dave Powers described as four of the happiest days of his life, John F. Kennedy read a poem about the death of an Irish general hundreds of years before, Owen Roe O'Neill. He loved the poem and took a copy of it back with him to Washington. Dave Powers would often recite the poem when talking about his old friend. Why did you leave us, Owen? Why did you die? Your troubles are all over. You're at rest with God on high. We're sheep without a shepherd when the snow shuts out the sky. Oh, why did you leave us? Why did you die?
My special thanks to Nachki Navak's Barabed Stephen Adams and Nachki Navak Didui Gloria Kerkorian for sharing their recollections of November 22, 1963, and also to Dave Powers, a man who was both John F. Kennedy's friend as well as mine, for sharing his memories with me so long ago. I want to end this edition of the Talking Vartan podcast by wishing all of you and your families a very happy Thanksgiving. Some time ago, the late Thomas Vartabedian, an award-winning journalist who spent decades as a columnist and reporter for the Armenian Weekly, wrote an Armenian Thanksgiving prayer. Let us all bow our heads in prayer on this Thanksgiving Day and offer our gratitude for bountiful health, the food we are about to partake, the welfare of our families, and for the privilege of remaining proud and conscientious Armenians. On this day, let us join our hands in unity, offer a prayer of hope to the destitute of Armenia, bring a jolt of prosperity to a declining economy, and end the turmoil on the Azari border. Bring our soldiers home to their families and the safety and security of their homes. Give us the strength to bury our scruples, turn our divided churches into one, erase our political differences, and dwell on common ground. Let us educate our children properly by introducing them to Armenian language, culture, and history. To all of you who are being torn from your roots, consider this on Thanksgiving Day. Had you been born to another ethnic race, would your life have been any less intriguing, involved, inspired? Surely there are moments of trepidation, rigmarole, and disenchantment, but there are also moments of gratitude and fulfillment. Just stand before an auditorium of young students singing their Armenian songs and reciting their poetry, and you will see the future is in pretty good hands. Listen to a Badarak that's centuries old and how it has maintained its antiquity. Hear the language spoken in a home, and you'll have your answer. Let us fill our universities with Armenian chairs, organize Armenian clubs, keep our teenagers from going astray, give them a reason to remain intact, and fill our libraries with Armenian books so others may benefit. Knowledge is power. Education is the Armenian lifeblood. Keep the lines of communication open by preserving our ethnic press universally. Give us a voice that will echo throughout the mainstream of society. Allow us the chance to create new writers and new literary giants in our midst. Let us become ambassadors for the Armenian cause. On this Thanksgiving, find the sustenance to burn new energy. For those who are too involved, come back to your families. Find a sense of balance and relish the diversity. To those who are distant, pledge a new set of values. A nation will die when a good person goes astray. No one hates a job well done. On this Thanksgiving Day, instead of putting others in their place, find a place for yourself. A lot of good would be accomplished in our Armenian world if everyone pitched in 
and nobody cared who got the credit. Bless us with the goodness of life, regardless of where we might live, eat, or pray. As with any banquet or feast, wait for dessert. The best is yet to come. I'm Osped David Medzorian, about it out lodge number one here in Boston. Happy Thanksgiving. Shunoragalem, Sideli, Baregamner.